today we're going to be talking about Elisha and Aramaeus. Um, as I thought about this story, I was reminded about a story I heard seven and a half years ago. Uh, seven and a half years ago, I was part of a lovely um, learning trip to London. Uh, it would have been a lovely learning amazing trip to London if my New York Mets weren't the New York Mets. Um, I remember lots of things from that trip. One of them was I would wake up in the middle of the night because of the time difference because the Mets happened to be in the World Series. But being the New York Mets, they lost the World Series. Um, so, yeah, I don't regret waking up at 2 in the morning to watch them lose four times. Not at all, you know? Um, but, yeah, so that trip was led by Jolene and John Hallbaker. And, and this learning trip was to see a VIP worker and his team um, kind of critique us about engagement with Muslims. You know, they were talking about not just what they did at the institution, they talked about classes, working in the community, and, and, and literally how to encounter Muslims everywhere from the street um, to public debate to a place called Teacher's Corner. Now, if you're not familiar with Teacher's Corner, um, it is an institution, it is a part of something that happens every Sunday in Hyde Park. Hyde Park is kind of like London's equivalent, well, I guess they were first, so it's hard to say it's the equivalent of Central Park, because they were here first. Um, but Hyde Park is to London as Central Park is to New York, if that's helpful for you, or if you're New York City. Um, in Hyde Park, in beginning in the 19th century, but maybe firmly established in 1872 after some riots, um, that's just something we do as American UK, we riot. Um, but after some riots, it more firmly established in 1872. But what Speaker's Corner is, it's a place where um, you're allowed to get free speech as long as you don't incite a riot. It's a place where you're allowed to talk about anything. So if you go on a Sunday afternoon, you walk through, you might get people who are yelling at you and telling you the earth is flat. You know, you might be, you might find people who are telling you that they're from another planet, right? Um, you might get anything that you can think about. Because the thing about Speaker's Corner is anyone can tell stop and start talking. In fact, I don't know if you're familiar with the phrase get off your soapbox, right? That's something we use here and we don't probably know where that comes from. It comes from Speaker's Corner. Because years ago, especially in the 19th century, people couldn't afford to build their own stages or have their own platforms. So the soapboxes were what like the, the markets and the stores would use to kind of take their goods. So there was always a stack of, uh, of soapboxes. So if you go to Speaker's Corner, you're all flat. No one's going to listen to you. But if you have a soapbox, right, you stop your soapbox, you stop yourself on your soapbox, and then you're a little bit higher, so you might get a little bit more attention, right? So the idea of get off your soapbox is like, okay, we're done now. You're done talking. Get off your soapbox. That reminds me of, like, as a kid in Philly, we didn't have soapboxes, but we had black milk crates. And I don't know if you guys remember this, like, this is what we had, right? So, like, some of you, like, grew up and you bought basketball hoops in your house. What we did is we knocked out the bottom, we nailed it to a pole. I'm sure this is all legal, right? We nailed it to a pole and now it's basketball, right? So we had, like, not soapbox, but we had these black crates. But the idea of the soapbox, the speaker's corner, was you put up your soapbox and you'd be able to talk about anything. You'd be able to debate. Now, what this group that we were with does in my park is they go and they debate Muslims. They go and they talk about theology of Christianity and Islam. Or they'll, they'll just say, well, this is what we know about Muhammad from your scriptures, your Quran, and, and this is what we know about Jesus from not the scriptures, but history. So they'll, they'll do a good job of kind of pairing the two against each other. Now, as you can imagine, this can get fairly heated. As you maybe need some imagination, but even further, is that sometimes this can get physical. And, and, and so, as much as I know in the story is that it's not usually the Christians who 
who's over there at the BIC guy who's not here, he shared a story about how, you know, there was one time where he was not on the soapbox. You know, they graduated. It's been over 100 years now, so the soapbox ain't enough now. So now they do ladders, which is terrifying to me, right? And it's terrifying when you have, like, a crowd of angry people under you and you're up on the ladder. But they did it, and I prayed, you know? We got out of there. It was good. But he said one time he got off the ladder, and he remembers a guy who was a, a recent con- convert to Islam who he, he's pretty sure the guy was a boxer. Because he hit him so hard that he was knocked out. And everybody else remembers there was a bunch of people hitting and kicking and screaming and hitting him. But he doesn't remember all of that. All he remembers is a, a guy coming over him, stepping over him, and guiding him out of the crowd. And, and, and this happened twice. And I was like, well, how do you know this was a guy? He's like, well, I don't know if it was a guy, but I'm pretty sure it was my guardian angel. I was like, well, that's interesting. And he's just like, well, his name was Henry. I was like, well, I was definitely a guardian angel. So that name was just such a, a godly name by Henry. So it must be a guardian angel. But the story I want to talk about is the one that stuck out for me. wasn't about the guardian angel Henry. It's about Harry and Larry, which are two other friends. And so that story goes, that my, 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 our VIP friend was up on the ladder and he was preaching. And, and as he was preaching, you know, there was a guy, he had, unbeknownst to him, he had a mutual friend, a Muslim uh, scholar that he was a big, and this guy was like, hey, if you're in London, go see my friend Jay. Oh, well, go see my friend, you know? And I was trying really hard, I was trying to say his name, but I was trying really hard not to say it, but you know, you know? So go see my friend. And, and so as our friend is up on the ladder, he's just preaching, he's just talking about Jesus, sharing about the differences between Christianity and Islam, and he feels good, right? Even though, like, the crowd around him is unruly and upset. So he comes down, and he meets this guy who's shaking, and he was just like, oh, no, like, I really don't want to get punched today. This is not, like, I thought it was a good day, like, let's not do this, you know? And, and the guy's trembling as, he, as he's talking to him. And he was just like, hey, are you okay? Do you want to go get some tea? Which I thought was a move of God, because if I was scared, I'm probably not inviting you to tea. But as you'll see in our story, sometimes God wants us to break bread, but we'll get to that, right? So he invites the guy to tea, and as they're sitting over it, a guy wouldn't even make eye contact with him. And as his hand's still shaking, he goes, hey, were you so calm because of those two men in the tree? Now, if you can't pick the hard part, is there's a lot of trees everywhere. But there's these really big oak trees. And then Sunday, he just happened to be on a ladder under this oak tree. Now, what his Muslim friend saw were two guys on top of the tree sitting there, dressed in white, laughing as our friend was, was, was preaching and sharing. Even though the crowd all around them was unruly and growing angry, these two people were up there. And so the, the, the Muslim guy said to him, like, was that why you were so calm? And my friend says, well, well, no, actually, I never looked up. If you remember, I didn't look up and say, hey, you guys, right? Even furthermore, I didn't see anyone. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. And the guy was like, no, 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 no. There were two guys in there, and they were laughing, and they were smiling, and they just seemed to be not just proud of people, but for protecting you. And my friend says, well, you know what's interesting? Is it might be two or three in the afternoon here in London, but back where I'm from in America, it's 10 to 11 a.m. And at 10 a.m., there's a bunch of churches and Christians who pray for me every Sunday at 10 a.m. And so when I go up there, that's why I feel protected, because Christians are praying for me. And here's the thing, my friend. God doesn't need me to see my protection. But you, 
needed to see them so that perhaps you might believe. Perhaps you might believe. And he doesn't end the story with saying, well, the man became a Christian on that day. He doesn't end the story with saying, well, then all the, the, the everything came down and he believed. I don't even know the fate of that man. But I know one thing was certain, that in the midst of perhaps more attack, in the presence of enemies, God still works and moves. And for that one person, God wanted to see Harry and Larry, which I think is hilarious name for angels. Henry, good name. Harry, Larry, I don't know about those two. But God wanted him to see that God protects God's people and that God gives us freedom even in the midst of our enemies. We've been talking about midnight. We've been pointing out that midnight for all of us, it could be a point of time. It could be a place that we're physically in. It could be a situation or a position that we are in. But what we want to hold on to as we go through this series is that God is there with us in that midnight darkness. That God is there with us in power. So if we get to 2 Kings 6 and this story of Elijah and the Aramean, what we find is that sometimes the enemy comes at us when we are at our weakness. And the weakness might be a point of time in your life. The weakness might be the place that you're in in your life. The weakness might be the situation that you're in. And last week it was the situation that we called. This week is the situation that you have nothing to do with. It's just midnight. And sometimes the enemy is riling up while you're asleep. I have a seven-year-old, which is wild now, because yesterday was a birthday, so she's now a seven-year-old. And there's, there's many things I love about my children. But it's about how particular they are, right? In my context, we call it OCD, right? In their context, we call it particular. And, and my seven-year-old, when she gets ready to sleep, it is not just comfort and cozy. It is every single stuffed animal that can fit in the king-sized bed, right? And I'm just like, but you're not even sleeping here. Why do they need to be with me, you know? And she's always like, well, because I might end up here. Right? And the most likes to end up there. And when you see her sleeping, it's actually it's, it's one of the things that bring me peace, right? No matter how hard my day is, when I come and I look at her, I'm just like, oh, all is well in the world. Look how comfortable she is. But I was thinking about that because sometimes I walk in my room at midnight and seeing her so comfortable, cozy, and sleeping and content. And I realized that for some of us, too, that's when midnight comes. When we're so comfortable and cozy and content, with no care in the world, that the enemy is gathering around us. And sometimes that enemy comes, not just to bogey us, but to actually deceive, to kill, and to destroy, like Jesus said. But even in that time, may we remember that God is there with us, that God is there with us in power. Amen? Let's pray. I find God, we thank you so much that you are indeed the God of power, the God of protection, the God of peace. So we pray that whatever midnight we're in this week, whether it's a point of time that we can look back and say, God, this is the season I'm in and it's really hard right now. Help us to know that you promise power, protection, and peace. God, whether it's a place we're in, a place that just seems to be suffocating us, a place where life seems to be absent, a place where we feel like we cannot escape. Help us to know that you promise 
our protection and peace. And God, what is the situation of our own doing, our situation where we've been blinded by our comfort, our, our coziness, our no care at all? Lord, with enemies all around us, help us to know that even then, you're there with us. You're there with us in power because you're the God of power, of protection, and of peace. We thank you for the story of Elisha and the Aramean. A reminder to us that the God who is in us is greater than the enemies around us. To the God who's with us and with us in power and with us in power and darkness. Is greater than any forces this world can muster against us. The God of power, of peace, of protection, we submit to you today. And we pray now to learn how to rely on you more, to learn how to submit to you always, to learn how to trust you, our God, and faith. In your name we pray. Amen. Every Bible telling me in 2 Kings 6, um, I'll be reading verses 8 to 23. I believe we'll also have it up front so you can follow there as well. Now the king of Aram, or Syria, was at war with Israel. After conferring his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel. He worried half in that place because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. This enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded them to tell him, Tell me, which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? None of us, my lord, the king, said one of his officers. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words you speak in your own bedroom. Go, find out where he is, the king ordered, so I can send men and capture him. But before he came back, he is in Gotham. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. He went by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army of horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh no, my lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. They are to pray, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hill full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. As the enemy came down toward him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike this enemy with blindness. So he struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked. Elisha told them, this is not the road and this is not the city. Follow me and I will lead you to the man you are looking for. And he led them to Samaria. After they entered the city, Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so that they can see you. Then the Lord opened their eyes and they looked and they were there inside Samaria. When the king of Israel saw them, he asked Elisha, Shall I kill them, my father? Shall I kill them? Do not kill them, he answered. Would you kill those who you have captured with your own sword above? Set food and water before them so that they may eat and drink and then go back to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them. And after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away. And they returned to their master. So the band from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. In Second Kings, the author is trying to, to answer this question that, that the Old Testament people of God seem to keep asking. And the question is usually something like this. Where is God? Has God failed? 
Because you see, in Second Kings, there's darkness all around, even the whole book of Kings. And the darkness is that from Solomon's reign comes the split of God's people into Israel and Judah. And from that split, it leads to captivity in not just Assyria, but also Babylon. So you have people who've been promised the land. You have people who've been promised God's presence. You have people who've been promised God's peace and power and protection who end up in captivity. So the question becomes, where is God in this? Why is our enemy winning? Why has Yahweh failed us? But the author's resounding answer seems to be, so in our Bible, we have first and second kings. In the Hebrew Bible, there's just one book, right? So when I say kings, it's just put them together, right? I don't know why in English, I, I blame King Wither, the King Dean. I blame King Dean, right? Like, I don't know why he decided to make it first and second. It's been one, maybe too long, right? But anyway, the author of the book of Kings is going to give a resounding no, and it's not God who said it, it's God's people who said it. And he's going to use this book of kings to get the history and the record of the failure of God's people. When I say stuff like that, I try to take a pause. We get to heaven. We know, like, there's going to be a book, right, where God's going to be like, this is what you did, baby. And that's how it is. But I am so glad that only God has that book. Right? And like, you know, I think about that for a second. That's a great that only God has that book. Like, for some of these people of God, we have a book of kings like, wow, they were terrible. They did what? Look at what they did. I even said to them, I think my sense of the two weeks ago, I was just like, when you go through the things, like, what? Well, he was really not a good person. Like, he was really bad at just following God. Right? Like, his whole book is, but not even his whole book, but like, we have, like, all access to these people's history and records. Like, maybe that's something you don't get grace for or get thanks for, but get thanks that God has your book and only God has your book. Right? But we have their book. And what does this book say? Well, you have Israel and Judah, two split kingdoms, right? In Israel, there were 20 kings before captivity. And of those 20 kings, not 10, not 5, not 1, zero were accounted as good in the eyes of the Lord. We like to complain about bad leadership, right? We can at least quit. It finds so good. It's just about every leader. Find something. Zero out of 20. In fact, even among God's people, of those 20, seven came into power through assassination. And then there's one guy, Zimri, who reigned, I think, for seven days. And in that week, it was a long time. But in that week, he realized that he was going to lose, so he set his house on fire. I don't know if it was an accident or maybe it was intentional, but he set the power on fire and he died too. But that's Israel's leadership. When he has to do that, it's a little bit better. But you got to quit. Because initially, you can say 8 out of 20 get a good report. But I think that initially because 8 out of 20 is so what? 40%. And most of we have teachers in them. Most of our teachers, that's not passing. But it's still better than zero. But then when you read the story of these eight kings, six of them turn away in the end of their life or return to doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. And there's only two. It's 10%. Right? Hezekiah and Josiah, who get actually a good report from God. So we have 40 kings leading the people of God and only two 
we can say we're actually good in the eyes of the Lord. This is the darkness that God's people is in. What's fascinating to me is that I always talk about these chaotic structures. So basically, the way the book is run is that it would mirror stories, mirror stories, mirror stories, and it was almost like A, A, B, B, C, C. The big point is the middle was the most important thing. And if you want another way to think about it, I always talk about how, like, remember to have scrolls, right? And in our culture, we read the back of the book, and we think we know what is in there, maybe that's just me, right? You read the back of the book, and you're good. In that culture, when you open the scroll, you get the middle of the scroll. So if I wanted to just guess the maze that people aren't going to read the entire scroll, I would put the most important story, the most important thing where? In the center, right? So the center of kings amidst all this darkness is actually a bunch of miracles attributed to Elisha. So in this darkness of us saying the people fail, the people aren't good, and even their leadership are failing, we see that God is working, God is moving, God is helping the poor, God is helping the unfortunate. And even, even, even funnier to me is that the center of the center, right, uh, of the miracles comes right before our story today. Which is just fascinating with the priest comes to life and they're like, hey, the place is too small, we gotta build a new one. They're like, okay, cool, let's go, you know, I'll go with you. Like, you're gonna come? So I didn't think that Elisha was kind of like me, right? Like, like, I can lead a team. But if you want me to build a house, like, you might not be the best person in the world, right? It's just like, I can go and, like, you tell me what you got on there, but, like, you want me to leave. But, like, it goes, right? And, and while they're doing it, right, they're, 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 they're cutting down trees and stuff, and someone borrows an axe, right? And you might know, right? And, and, I don't know, maybe they're swinging a little too hard, right? But they, they swing and they lose the axe and it falls into the water. And they're like, oh, no, it's borrowed, right? Like, that's the axe of God. And there's no other point in the story I've seen. And it's not included in, except for the one thing that God cares about, even the little things that seem to bother us. Like, no prayer request is too small, right? So Elijah goes, well, well, where did it go in? The guy's like, I mean, right there. Now, if someone who's lost things in water before, that story makes me feel some type of way. Like, when I was in Columbia, I kind of dived into the waterfall, and I lost my wedding ring. I wish Elijah was there, but it was right there. Right? But he wasn't. But in this story, the guy was like, well, right there, Elisha, I'll give me a tree, right? Throw the tree into the water, the axe that floats, right? I would be like that. It's kind of nice, right? My wife was on the show, too, so that was a lot of fun. Um, but the axe that floats. And again, the whole purpose of this story is to say, even though you're leaving to failure, even though you haven't been good, God is being good, right? And then you get to our story here. Where God is going to say that not only am I the hero of the story, but I'm always going to be there for you. What's the point of darkness here? Aram, Assyria, is at war with Israel. Right? Like, they weren't like, hey, what's going on? Like, they were raiding. They were coming in and attacking. But the, the two countries, remember, Israel's now a... Uh, so when you see Samaria, throw so some of us off, because we bring in with Jesus, that's their mindset, with Samaria, like, they're over there, right? But Samaria's part of Israel, right? So, 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 Israel and Assyria are a war. Israel and Syria are a war. Are a war. And Aram just keeps attacking, attacking, attacking. And, and finally, Elisha is just like, listen, um, king, they're going to try to kill you. So, like, I know you were going on this trip. You should probably divert your plans, right? And he kept doing it time and time and time again. And it frustrates the king of Aaron to the point where he's like, okay, listen. And that's very logical, right? He's like, one of y'all is a traitor. 
Like, there's just no way, right? It's not internet. There's no GPS. There's no way to get back to know every single time about that. One of you are a traitor. Now, now, some people are speculating because remember, one of Elisha's miracles, or one of the miracles of Syria, happens to this guy by the name of what? Naaman. So there's some people who have speculated that, that Naaman either was the one who was just like, hey, no, it's not really that, um, like, we're traitors. It's just that this Elisha guy, he knows everything. His God is different. Like, I bet what happened to your bedroom, he could even tell you. What's this play? A little terrifying? But it's like, yeah. And so the, 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 the Syrian officer was just like, or the Syrian officer was like, listen, it's not so much that we are traitors, but it's Elisha. He's the one who's telling everything. So that's the point we're at. The Arab Israel are at war. Elisha keeps going to Arab. So, so they say, like, well, where's Elisha? He's the. That's just what's interesting to me, right? Instead of being like, well, that God is powerful, he's like, you know what? I might not be able to see that guy to see Elisha. Let's go get right? So he goes to Boston, which is a city that is not really known for anything else except being the, the home or, or place where Elisha resided. The other thing that's known for, interestingly enough, though, in Scripture, is Boston is where Joseph was sold by his brother. Right? And then Joseph goes into slavery in Egypt. He ascends to power. And then after Joseph dies, the Israelites become enslaved in Egypt. So it's like, Joseph's not really a good spot, right? But that's where he is. And, and so the, the, the king gets horses and chariots so much, right? And he goes at midnight to surround the city because he wants them to wake up to see his power. I think that's what's fascinating to me about the enemies of God. If they're obsessed with showing their power. They're obsessed with showing like how mighty they are. And while they're in the comfort of their bed and sleeping, the enemy surrounds them at midnight. And the next morning, a servant wakes up. Probably to go get water or do something very, very normal, right? And I, I can picture this, you know? You just wake up in a little town in the middle of nowhere, not known for anything, and you're just like, wait a second. He runs out! So he ruins their life. And he's terrified, right? Seemingly scary. But it's a surprisingly superb thing about him. If he looks around, he can force to carry his Aram in all its power. Aram has thrown forces surround it. So the servant who got up early, this is why I'm like, this is why you don't get up early. He did. He gets up early. He sees mighty Aram. He runs inside Elisha. And I love that Elisha is strong to think of spiritual. The servant is terrified. But what does he say to him? He says, do not be afraid. I love that. Because it's not saying that your fear is invalid. It's not saying that the enemy doesn't look powerful. It's not saying that what you're feeling isn't real. And it is saying that your God is stronger than your feelings. That what you see is greater, is lesser than what you don't see. And no matter how powerful the enemy looks, your God is even more powerful. And I love that. Do not be afraid. Why? Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then he prays. And what does he pray? He prays, open his eyes, Lord, 
so that he may see. So when God opens the servant's eyes, what does he see? Not the horses and chariots of now, but the horses and chariots of heaven. Angels surrounding Elijah. Now, I don't think he'll carry a lamb. I don't think they do horses and chariots in high park. That seems to have a mountain, uh, 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 a heavenly army that was surrounded and ready to defend. But I think what's even more beautiful about this story is that a lot of us, myself included, we look at Yahweh in the Old Testament and be like, God is just so violent all the time. And then you get stories like this. Where it's not violence that wins out at all. Because what happens next isn't that the angels come down and slaughter the animals. What happens next is that Elijah and Faith walk up to them. And that's where I'm like, Elijah might be different. Like, I get Elijah not wanting to cut down trees after relating him on that. Right? I get that God's powerful and the angels are all around me. But this man walks into their camp. And I'm just like, hey, y'all on the wrong road. In fact, before he gets there, he's like, God, I want you to blind them, right? So he blinds them, and he walks in and says, like, hey, y'all on the wrong road. Let me lead you to the place you're going and the person you're seeking. Now, what's fascinating to me is that they knew of the life They knew of the miracles, but apparently they didn't know what his voice sounded like. And they were so flustered that all these horses and chariots looked into one person lead them on the way. And at first I was like, well, that's silly. Then I realized that when you're blind and can't see, all you have left is to trust the person who can see, is to trust the person who can direct. I feel like there's a sermon in there somewhere. When you're blind and you can't see, all you have left is to trust the person who can see and the voice that can direct you. And so he leads them into Samaria. He leads them into a stronghold of Israel. And even though the king of Israel, we've seen it's not good by our comments, he looks plain. Even though the king of Israel gets saved and saved by God, we don't see him getting any praise to God doing anything here. His reaction is what? Like, you've delivered my enemies. Can I kill them? And again, it forces us to take a step back to realize that, yes, even Yahweh of the Old Testament doesn't operate under this violent, just violent thing. The king was just like, well, you served them up. I can just tell him, this is, this is what I do. And Elijah says, no, actually, I want you to make them a meal. I want you to cook them food. I want you to have a feast. And I thought about that, and I was just like, well, that's interesting. We like to think, surely, goodness and mercy, that you make a, a table for me in the presence of my enemies. That's different. We feel like God's with us in the presence of our enemies. But imagine actually you making food for your enemies to feed. The same enemies that were coming to strike down the prophet. The same enemies that still had the horses and chariots and can now feed. Yet that's what Elijah commands them to do. Elijah chooses peace. And the feast and baking bread is what leads to prosperity. And that's where that story ends. I think when we think about midnight and morning, and we think about what is the meaning of God at midnight this week, I think we're in midnight when we stay here 
Because our fears remain bigger than our God. I think that's a midnight. If what you're scared of is more powerful than your God, that's a midnight. I think we're at midnight, some of us, when we get used to adjusting our eyes to the darkness, and we forget that we're going blind. We get so used to darkness. How much have you ever been in touch with darkness? You can't see your hand in front of you, right? But like after a while sitting in that darkness, you begin to think that's all there is. And I think for some of us, we're in midnight because we've gotten so good. Instead of seeking the light or, or following the one who has the vision to see, we get so used to the darkness all around us that that becomes the norm. So we adjust our eyes to navigate the dark instead of asking guys to open our eyes. Instead of asking God to open our eyes, we just adjust to the dark. I think it's also midnight when we worry and get lost in it. Because worry is overwhelming. Worry is a God that doesn't forgive, it doesn't relent. I think it's midnight when we worry and get lost in it. But I also think we learn this from the King of Israel here. I think it's midnight when we want God to bless victory but only as we see fit. When we say this is a win, and this is how we're supposed to win, you serve them up and kill them all, right? Like when we want victory and God to bless victory as we see fit. So how do we get past this continued and fears being greater than our God? I think the first one is, remember the words of Elijah here. Do not be afraid. Trust God. Why? Because he is Yahweh. And hold on to our original meaning of Yahweh, right? No matter how big the fear is, remember that God has loved me. That God is loving me. That God will love me. And in the second half of the meaning of Yahweh, I am that I am, it's that everything that God has revealed God to be is who God is. So God has shown himself as good. Trust that God is good. If God has shown himself that he's merciful, trust that God is merciful. If he's loving, trust that God is loving. Trust that God always loves you, but if what God revealed is who God is. Instead of adjusting to darkness around us, may we be bold enough to pray and ask God to give us eyes that we need to see. Do not get comfortable with darkness. Do not get comfortable with darkness. Do not get comfortable with darkness because it's easy to believe that darkness is all there is. If you're in the dark right now, stop and pray and say, God, give me eyes to see. And if I cannot see, give me someone to help lead me to the light. Because you might be the servant this morning that God needs to open your eyes to see. Or you might be the light to who just needs to grab his hand and pray for him or her to see him. I know there's so much that we worry about. Remember what the servant did with their life. They shared it with the light. May we be vulnerable enough. I can't say bold, but that sounds bold. I think vulnerable is better. May we be vulnerable enough and trust in God and our community enough that we can truly share our fears with one another. Because that's how worry dominates us, when we're the only one holding it. But if you're vulnerable enough to share that with someone that you know loves you and trusts you, God 
God can empower them to strengthen you. Cast your burdens on the Lord, yes, but you're also meant to cast your burdens on one another. But it's always easier for three of us to carry the load than one of us alone. And worry dominates us and we hold it ourselves. Be vulnerable enough to share your worries so that we can carry it together. And the last one is maybe the most unabashed thing I've read this whole week, and I love it. May we break bread and not one another. May we break bread and not one another. I mean, that's the message here. And Syria and Israel need to feast, not because God's army is mightier, not because people suffer and die, but because they were willing to break bread together. We started with the kids and talked about horses and chariots and all, all having enemies. One of the ways we can look like our Jesus is to choose to break bread and not break each other. Amen? I can work, invite us to worship team. We're going to close this. Sing that song. Can I be new to some of us? Um, it's a song that uh, there's actually, I think, the, the band has a, I don't know the name of the EP is out of Midnight. So I was like, I was looking for Midnight songs. Like, Rick Sound actually got me thinking on this. He sent me a bunch. I was like, I don't know a lot of Midnight songs, right? But on this one album, they had this song, Sea of Victory. And I remember I affected my band. I was like, I feel like at some point in the series, you can sing this song. But if you sing about seeing a victory, may we realize and hold on to the simple fact that we only have victory in Jesus' name. And that the victory that God wants is a victory that doesn't destroy his power, that doesn't destroy his protection, but it guarantees our peace. May we be a people who are willing to not be afraid, who are willing to pray, who are willing to cheer our fears, and who are committed to breaking bread together so that we don't break one another. I'd like to invite you to the pastors in the room as well. We'd love to pray for you. If anything you've got going on, um, please come up and please stand let things go. I'm not 
we're going to see a victory. Maybe today, maybe tomorrow, um, Lord, eventually one day when we come home with you. Jesus, we praise you. We thank you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.